Section 10 of Tongues of Conscience by Robert Hitchens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lisa Reichert. William Foster, Part 6. The death of her mother left a strong and terrible impression upon Catherine. She brooded over it continually, and over Mrs. Ardock's last words. The last words of the dying often dwell in the memories of the living. Faltering, feeble, sometimes apparently inconsequent, they appear nevertheless prophetic, touched with the dignity of eternal truths. Lives have been moulded by such last words. Natures have been diverted into new and curious paths. So it was now. For the future, Mr. Ardock's influence had no force over his daughter. An influence from the grave dominated her. Mr. Ardock recognized the fact, shrugged his shoulders, and travelled. His philosophy taught him to accept the inevitable with the fortitude of the Stoic. From henceforward the Sirets saw little of him. As to Mark, with his habitual tenderness, he set about consoling his wife for her loss. He was kindness itself. Catherine seemed grateful, was indeed grateful to him. Nevertheless, after the death of Mrs. Ardock, something seemed to stand between her and her husband, dividing them. Mark did not know what this was. For some time he was unconscious of this thin veil dropped between them. Even when he became aware of it, he could not tell why it was there. He strove to put it aside, but in vain. Then he strove not to see it, not to think of it. He forgot it in his work. But Catherine always knew what set her apart from her husband. It was that influence from the grave. It was the memory of her mother's last words. She recognized them from the first, blindly, as words of prophecy. Yet the days went by. William Foster sat in his study in the Surrey home once more, while the spring grew, imitative of last year's spring. And there was no sign from God. Catherine never doubted that the dying woman had been inspired. She never doubted that William Foster would be stayed, however tragically, from working fresh evil in the world. Indeed, she waited, as one assured of some particular future, breathless in expectation of its approach. Sometimes she strove to picture precisely what it might be, and fancifully she set two men before her, Mark and William Foster. Even in real life they seemed two different men. Why not in the life of the imagination? And that was sweeter, for then she could look forward to the one standing fast, to the other being stricken. Might not his genius die in a man while the man lived on? There had been instances of men who had written one or two brilliant books and had seemed to exhaust themselves in that effort. And she dreamed of her husband's gift being stolen from him, divinely, of the stranger being slain. Yet this dreaming was idle and fantastic, the image which greets closed eyes for Mark's energy and enthusiasm were growing. The fury of the papers fed him. The cries of pious fear emboldened his dogged and dreary talent. His genius grew darker as its darkness became recognized. This third book of his promised to be more powerful, more deadly, than either of its forerunners. He did not speak much of it to Catherine, but now and then, carried away by excitement and by the need of sympathy, he dropped a hint of what he was doing. She listened attentively, but said little. 
Mark noticed her lack of responsiveness, and one night he said, rather bitterly, "'You no longer care for your husband's achievements, Catherine.' He did not call her Kitty. "'I fear them, Mark,' Catherine replied. "'Fear them? Why?' "'They are doing great harm in the world.' Mark uttered an impatient exclamation. As a man he was kind and gentle, but as an artist he was willful and intolerant. Soon after this he wrote to Berend and invited him to stay. Berend came. This time Catherine shuddered at his coming. She began to look upon him as her husband's evil genius. Berend did not apparently notice any change in her, for he treated her as usual, and spoke much to her of Mark. And Catherine was too reserved to express the feelings which tortured her to a comparative stranger. For this reason, Berend did not understand the terrible conflict that was raging within her, as William Foster's new work grew, and he often spoke to her about the book, and described, with mischievous intellectual delight, its terror, its immorality, and its pain. Catherine listened with apparent calm. She was waiting for that interruption from heaven. She was wondering why it did not come. One night in summer it chanced that she and Berend spoke of fate. Catherine, dominated by her fixed idea that God would intervene in some strange and abrupt way to interrupt the activities of Mark, spoke of fate as something inevitably ordained, certain as the rising of the sun or the dropping down of the darkness. Berend laughed. "'There is no fate,' he said. "'There is man, there is woman. Man and woman make circumstance.' We fashion our own lives, and the lives of others. And our deaths, said Catherine. We die when we've done enough, when we've done our best or worst, when we've pushed our energy as far as it will go, that is, if we die what is called a natural death. But of course now and then some other human being chooses to think for us, and to think we have lived long enough, or too long, and then... He paused with a smile. Then, said Catherine, leaning slightly forward, then that human being may cut our thread prematurely, and down we go to death. Catherine drew in her breath sharply. But that again, continued Berend, is man, or woman, not the fantasy you call fate. Perhaps fate can take possession of a man or woman, Catherine said slowly and thoughtfully. Govern them, act through them. "'That's a dangerous doctrine. You believe that criminals are irresponsible, then?' "'I don't know,' she said. "'I suppose there must be an agent. Yes, I suppose there must.' She spoke as one who was thinking out a problem. "'God,' she continued, after a moment of silence, "'may choose to use a man or a woman as an agent instead of a disease.' "'Oh, well,' said Berend, with his odd high laugh. I cannot go with you on that road of thought, Mrs. Sirrett. I am not afflicted with a religion. Oh, here's Mark. How have you been getting on, Mr. William Foster? Grandly, he replied. His dark eyes were blazing with excitement. Catherine suddenly turned very cold. She got up and left the room. The two men scarcely noticed her departure. They plunged into an eager discussion on the book. They debated it till the night waned and the melancholy breath of dawn stole in at the open window. Meanwhile, Catherine, who had gone to bed, lay awake. This summer was so like last summer. 
Now, as then, she was sleepless and heard the distant, excited voices rising and falling, murmuring on and on, hour after hour. Now, as then, they accompanied activity. Now, as then, the activity was deadly, harmful to an invisible multitude hidden out in the great world. But there was a difference between last year and this, so like in many ways. Mark's power had grown in the interval. He had become more dangerous. And Catherine had developed also. Circumstance, spoken of by Berendt, had changed, twisted into a different shape by dying hands, twisted again by the hands, all unconscious, of that man who talked downstairs, of Berend. Was he, too, an agent of fate, at which he scornfully laughed? Why not? Oh, those everlasting voices! They rang hatefully in the sleepless woman's ears. Their eagerness, their enthusiasm, was terrible to her, for now their joy seemed to summon her to a great darkness. Their sound seemed to call her to the making of a great silence. She put her hands over her ears, but she still heard them till it was dawn. She still heard them when they were no more speaking. From this time Catherine waited indeed, but with a patience quite different from that which possessed her formerly. Then she was expectant, almost superstitiously expectant, of an abrupt interposition of fate. Now she waited with less expectancy, and with a strange and growing sense of personal obligation, which had been totally absent from her before the issue lay between the thing invisible and herself. And each day that passed brought the issue a step nearer to her. How pathetically seemed to her the ignorance of the two men who were her companions in the cloistered house at this time. Tears rose in her eyes at the thought of her secret, and their impotence to know it. But then she thought of her mother's deathbed, and the tears ran dry, for the spirit of her mother surely was with her in the dark, the spirit that knew all now, and that could inspire and direct her. The book grew, and Catherine waited. Would Mark be allowed to complete it? That was the great question. If he was, then the burden of action was laid upon her by the will of God. She had quite made up her mind on that. She had even prayed, and believed that an answer had been given to her prayer, and that the answer was, In the event you anticipate, it is God's will that you should act. She was fully resolved to do God's will, and so she waited with a strong, but how anxious, patience. The growth of the book was now become ironical to her, as the growth of a plant which must die when it attains a certain height. The labour spent upon it, the discussion that raged around it, the decisions that were arrived at to its course. All these things were now most pitifully pathetic to Catherine. As she watched Mark and Berend, as she listened to them, she seemed to watch and listen to children, playing idly, chattering idly, on the edge of events that must stop their play, their chatter, perhaps for ever. For this book would never see the light. No one would ever read it, no one would ever speak of it but these two men, whose lives seemed bound up in it, and Catherine alone knew this. Sometimes she had a longing to tell them of this knowledge, to say to Mark, Do not waste yourself in this useless energy, to say to Berend, Do not rejoice over the future of that which has no future. 
but she refrained, knowing that to speak would be to give the lie to what she spoke, for such revelation must frustrate her contemplated action. So nobody knew what she knew, except the spirit that stood by her in the night. She waited, and the book drew slowly towards its climax, and its close. As Berend grew more excited about it, he spoke more of it to Catherine. But Mark, conscious of that veil dropped between him and his wife, scarcely mentioned it to her, and declined to read any passages from it aloud. Catherine understood that he distrusted her, and knew her utterly unsympathetic and adverse to his labours. The sign for which she had hoped, which she had once most confidently expected, did not come and at length she almost ceased to think of it, and was inclined to put the idea from her as a foolish dream. The burden of action was, it seemed, to be laid upon her. She would accept it calmly, dutifully. So the summer waned, drawing towards autumn. The atmosphere grew heavy and mellow. The garden was languid with its weight of bearing plants and with its fruits. Mists rose at evening in the woods, clouding the trunks of the trees, and spreading melancholy as a sad tale that floats like a mist over those who hear it. And one day the book was finished. Berend came to tell Catherine. He was radiant. While he spoke he never noticed that she closed her hands tightly, as one who prepares to face an enemy. "'We are going to London this afternoon,' he added. "'Mark must see his publisher.' "'He is taking up the manuscript,' said Catherine hastily. "'No, no. There are one or two finishing touches to be put, but he must arrange about the date of publishing. He will return by the midnight train, but I shall stay in town for the night.' Mark locked up the manuscript in a drawer of his writing-table, the key of which he carried about him on a chain, and the two men took their departure, leaving Catherine alone. So the time of her duty was fully come.' She had waited till now because, till now, she had not been absolutely sure that she was to be the agent through whom fate was to work, but she could no longer dare to doubt. The book was finished. Mark had been allowed to finish it. But its deadly work was not accomplished till it was given to the world. It must never be given to the world. The day was not cold, yet Catherine ordered the footman to light a fire in Mark's study. When he had done so, she told him not to allow her to be disturbed. Then she went into the room and shut the door behind her. She walked up to the writing-table, at which Mark had spent so many hours, labouring, thinking, imagining, working out, fashioning that shell which was to burst and maim a world. The silence in the room seemed curiously intense. The fire gleamed, and the sun gleamed too, though already it was slanting to the west. Catherine stood for some time by the table. Then she tried the drawer in which Mark kept his manuscript, and found it locked. The resistance of the drawer to her hand roused her. Two or three minutes later one of the maids in the servants' hall said, "'Whatever's that?' "'What?' said the footman, who had lit the study fire. "'Listen,' said the maid. They listened, and heard a sound like a blow struck on some hard substance. "'There it is again,' said the maid.' whatever can it be? The footman didn't know, but they both agreed that the noise seemed to come from the study. While they were still gossiping about it, Catherine stood at Mark's writing-table, and drew out from an open drawer the manuscript of the book. 
She lifted it in her hands slowly, and her face was hard and set. Then she turned and carried it to the hearth, where the fire was blazing. By the hearth she paused. She meant to destroy the book in the fire, but now that she saw the book, now that she held it in her hands, the deed seemed so horribly merciless that she hesitated. Then she kneeled down on the hearth and leaned towards the flames. Their light played upon her face, their heat scorched her skin. She held the book towards them, over them. The flames flew up towards it eagerly, seeming to desire it. Catherine tantalized them by withholding from them their prey. And now, in this crisis of action, doubts assailed her. She remembered that she had never read the book, though she had heard much of it from Berend. He was imaginative and essentially mischievous. Perhaps he had exaggerated its tendency, drawn too lurid a picture of its horrible power. Catherine turned a page or two and glanced at the clear, even writing. It fascinated her eyes. At eight the footman opened the door, announcing dinner. Catherine started as if from a dream. Her face was white, and her eyes were ablaze with excitement. She put the manuscript back in the drawer, went into the dining-room, and made a pretense of dining. But very soon she was back again in the study. She sat down under a lamp by the fire and went on reading the book. She knew that Mark would not be home till midnight. There was plenty of time. She turned the leaves one by one, and presently she forgot the passing of time. She forgot everything in the evil fascination of the book. She was enthralled. She was horror-stricken, but she could not cease from reading. Only when she had finished she meant to burn the book. No one else should ever come under its spell. She never heard the clock striking the hours. She never heard the sound of carriage-wheels on the gravel of the drive. She never heard a step in the hall, the opening of the study door. Only when Mark stood before her with an exclamation of keen surprise did she start up. The manuscript dropped from her hands on to the hearth. The drawer in the writing-table, broken open, gaped wide. "'Catherine,' Mark said, and he bent hastily and picked up the book. "'Catherine, what is the meaning of this? You have—you have—' He stopped, struck dumb by flooding astonishment. She stared up at him without a word, and with a dazed expression in her eyes. He looked towards the drawer. "'You have dared to break open my writing-table.' "'Yes,' she said, finding a voice. "'I have dared.' "'And to read, to read,' she nodded. Mark seemed utterly confused by surprise. He looked almost sheepish, as men do in blank amazement. She got up and stood before him, and laid her hands on his, which held the book. "'You see that fire?' she said in a low voice. He looked at it, as if he had not noticed it before. "'What's it for?' he said, also in a low voice. "'Don't you know?' They looked into each other's eyes for a moment. "'To—to—you intended to burn.' She nodded again, and closed her hands tightly on the book. "'Mark,' she said solemnly, "'it's an evil thing. Let it go.' His face changed. Astonishment died in fierce excitement. "'You're mad!' he said brutally, and he struck her hands away from the book with his clenched fist. She did not cry out but her face became utterly dogged. He saw that. "'Do you hear me?' he said. "'Yes.' His passion rose as he began fully to grasp the enormity of the deed that his coming had prevented. 
"'You would destroy my labour, my very soul,' he said hoarsely. "'You who pretended to love me.' "'Because I love you,' she said. He laughed aloud. "'You hate me!' "'I hate to see you do evil,' she said. "'This is fanaticism,' he muttered, looking at her obstinate white face and steady eyes. "'Sheer fanaticism!' It began almost to frighten him. "'You shall not do this evil,' she said. "'You shall not.' Mark stared at her for a moment. Then he turned away. "'I'll not argue with you,' he said. "'But if you had done what you meant to do, "'if you had destroyed my labour, "'I would have recreated it, every sentence, every word.' "'No, Mark!' "'I would, I would,' he said. "'The world shall have it. "'The world should have had it even then. "'Go to your room.' She left him, but her face had not changed or lost its expression. She went upstairs slowly, and the spirit of her mother went with her. She felt sure of that. When, two days afterwards, late in the evening, Mark Sirrett suddenly died, from poison, as was proved at Catherine's trial, she had no feeling that Mark was dead. That only came to her afterwards, as she sat by the body, awaiting the useless arrival of the doctor. She only knew that the stranger was gone, the stranger into whose wild eyes she had gazed for the first time in the pavilion of Grenada, when the world was golden beneath them and the roses touched his hair. She looked at the body and she seemed to hear again the bells of the cathedral, filling the drowsy valley with terrible vibrations of romance. It was a passing bell, for God had stricken down William Foster. End of section 10